From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us two goofy guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are powered by... You like how I took the intro that I normally set you up for for the guest and combine it yeah, with the Yeah, but now it's going to be peaks. double. Oh, we're going to do it again? Well, no, but when we introduce Ken, you do it again. You just said his name too early. The Ken is the generic term I use for any <laughs> guest. You blew the surprise because they definitely didn't read didn't who read the guest it. was. <laughs> All right, just go. Tell us who we're, we're talking to today, Eric. This is exciting because... Anybody who is a member of Peegs, anybody who visits the site regularly, knows of this gentleman's work, but he is the unsung hero of the Peegs family. He has tremendous insight, not just to the Indiana program, but he's covered professional sports leagues. He is a sports dude through and through. And he, what I love about our guest today, is he really takes... Uh, besides doing throughout the season the podcasts that everybody loves, the Peaks podcast. Morning after, I'm there every morning Absolutely. after. And, and big things that happen throughout the year, whether it's the football program or the baseball program, this gentleman is responsible for all that great podcast coverage. But he also is great at taking kind of a macro view of what's going on. I think so many of us get lost in what five-star didn't come to Indiana. What recruit are we looking at at this camp coming up next weekend? And what this gentleman does is kind of takes a step back and goes, where are we as a program? Where have we been? Is it reasonable to get to the place where everybody wants to get? And and I'm speaking specifically about an article that he wrote just a couple months ago. Oh, we're going to get into it. Big time. And he really is a guy that is just so useful to talk to when we talk about the state of Indiana basketball. So without further ado, please welcome Peegs' own Ken Bikoff. Welcome, Ken. Well, thank you so. Oh, thank you so much, guys. You know, it's uh, uh, that's that's a lot to live up to. I don't know. Some some say that uh, uh, I have a uh, just a high level view. Other people say I'm a homer. Other people say I'm I'm too negative. So I think I'm getting it probably just about right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I do not to embarrass you, Ken, uh, but just to heap a little bit more praise on you. Our partnership with Peeg started many months ago now, and the person who is responsible for actually executing the partnership with Peegs is Ken Bikoff. If there if there was no Ken Bikoff, Hoosier Hysterics would not be part of the Peegs family. Very patient with two guys who had no idea what they were doing with podcasts. Thank you for talking <laughs> us through that and getting us acclimated. Well, you know, I've been asked by people, you know, are, are you bothered that they, they did this partnership? Is this something that, uh, uh, are they tr stepping on your toes? And I said, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. It, there's a news and an entertainment division that we're working with. And you guys are doing an absolute great job of, of talking to, uh, to you know, whether it be Cody Zeller or Verdell Jones or Laz or, or you know, and, or any of Peegs, Rab Johns, all of that. 
no, it, it's it's been great to have you guys uh, with us and to uh, uh, to to jump in uh, with Peegs. I think it's a, it's a great partnership. So not to heap praise on on you guys, but <laughs> no, no, you know, keep going. absolutely, keep going. It, it's been great. <laughs> it's it's been it's been really a, a lot of fun, and it's uh, I think been a great addition to the site. Not a good addition, a great addition to the site because there is a situation where you know you get so involved in covering the team and you want to be able to cover day in day out games game reaction breaking down what happened the night before that it can get a little bit swallowed up to try to get somebody uh on the phone or try to try to set something up i give you guys a lot of credit it's a hell of a lot of work to try to line up guests and get everybody on the same page, make sure you connect with them. And when you're talking about guys that you've been talking to, some guys are overseas, some guys are doing that. I, I give you a lot of credit because that's a hell of a lot of work. I, I used to co-host a, a national radio show in Chicago that was based out of Chicago. It was a pro football weekly basketball news radio show that we co-hosted with then Lakers assistant coach Jim Clemens. Nice. And just trying to line up guests for that week after week after after week uh, was a challenge, and you guys have done a great job with that. So good job for you guys. Well, that is all Eric, 100% Eric. <laughs> He's amazing at that. I am the lucky recipient of all that hard work, and, you know, uh, I'd say it was a little bit of a snake oils, oilsman act in the, in the beginning just to convince people that we were legitimate. And then you got, got a few of these people to say yes. And then all of a sudden, we didn't have to try to trick them and think that we were legitimate. And we're like, well, look, you know, we talked to Calvert Cheney, so come on, we must be okay. <laughs> so many emails of, we've got Calvert Cheney, we've got... Uh, well, listen, after all the praise that uh, Ken just heaped on us, uh, I would say over-the-top praise, I think we're done here. Ken, great podcast interview, Thank you. and we'll uh, you. see you next really week. Really enjoyed it, and pretty much that's all everybody wants to hear from me anyway, no. so it's okay. Here's yeah. where we're going to start, because you teased it there. Eric teased it even before you did. What was your life like before Peaks? How did how did you, you know, we're going to get to how you joined the Peaks family, but give us some background on, on what you did pre-Peaks. Uh, well, I mean, I, I grew up in Maryville, Indiana. I'm a region rat. Anybody in, from the state of Indiana knows uh, where the region is. And uh, I went to school at IU. Always wanted from the time that I was a kid to be a sports writer because, it, you know, it's it, I figured it out real early. You're five foot nine. You're fat. Yeah, you're you're not going to be playing sports, <laughs> but uh, you, you could write about it and you could learn as much about it as humanly possible. So I went to school, got a journalism degree, uh, got a tiny job working as as a sports clerk. It's basically an entry level job uh, for the Vidette Times of North Northwest Indiana, based out of Valpo, and uh, then got a bigger job at the Auburn Evening Star for eighteen thousand dollars a year. Yes. This is in nineteen ninety. Uh, and Auburn, Indiana is the uh, uh, hometown of Luke Recker. Mm. And so that, that was, uh, we, I went there. I worked there for three weeks. And I had sent in a resume to a, a startup magazine called Basketball News. It was a national basketball uh, magazine covering college and uh, the NBA. It was just starting up, and I was lucky enough to get hired there. And so it wasn't for a lot more money, but it was a national magazine. It was an opportunity. It was to work in the same offices as Pro Football Weekly. And so 
I started there. And so there I am, you know, 23 years old, uh, just had just turned 23. And all of a sudden I'm covering the Sacramento Kings and the Memphis Grizzlies and everything, the Vancouver Grizzlies back then, Mm -hmm. the Raptors and the San Antonio Spurs and the Indiana Pacers. And uh, plus like the big 10 and the mid Eastern athletic conference and the Southland conference, all these, all these uh, college uh, conferences and NBA teams. And it was just like a trial by fire. I mean, they threw you right in there and all of a sudden you're covering NBA, NCAA, going to tournament games, going to, I mean, it's a dream of what, if somebody who's doing what I was doing, it's a dream to be able to do all of that. And you were on the and road? And especially do it, what's that? You were on the road, Ken, on those end, covering the NBA games? Sometimes I would go on the road. Uh, a lot of times it was dealing with correspondence and, uh, you know, calling people and just working sources to find out the inside. Uh, uh, you know, it, basically what we did is, is we hired these correspondents and they would be able to tell us the stuff that they were uncomfortable writing. Mm-hmm. And so then it came our way and we were able to uh, to get that inside stuff. Now, this was uh, again, Internet was real young. It was 1998. And uh, inter- so the Internet was real young. But uh, we were able to take a lot of what they did, had done at Pro Football Weekly because it was in the same offices and turn it over into basketball. And so, yeah, there was some travel of going and visiting correspondents and, and, and going and covering some games and doing things like that. But most of it was based out of uh, offices and just working the phones, just working the phones and building sources and, and doing everything like that. And uh, it was a great way to earn a ton of experience. Uh, with all of that. Uh, then once we were, I, I also had, was covering basketball. They got the opportunity to uh, do radio shows. So I started doing radio shows and that's kind of where the broadcast side of what I do, where that came from was there. So we, uh, we, I did that. I had the, the national radio show. I had the opportunity to cover uh, Kirk Haston's trip to the NBA uh, pre-draft camp. Mm which was uh, in Chicago at the time. And I called, I had been a Peeg subscriber. Uh, you know, I'd been with him uh, uh, for, you know, just as an IU fan going back. And I, uh, I called him and I said, listen, Mike, I'm going to be covering this anyway. Do you want me to give you any extra coverage? Mm. I just want the people to be able to, uh, to see it. And he said, yeah, do that. And I'll comp you your uh, subscription. I said, okay, that's fine. You don't have to do that. But I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm there. And so I like the site. I want to help out any way I can. And so I did that. Uh, The next year, Jared Jeffries came through the same way and I did it again. And then uh, uh, I stayed in touch with Mike over the next couple of years. Wait, 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 Um, Ken, to jump in. So you got free subscription your first year. What'd you get second year? Just another year of free subscription? Yeah, the same thing. I, I was doing it because it was fun, and I enjoyed the side. <laughs> what a cheapskate Mike is. I mean, he could bump it up a little bit. I mean, how about a gift certificate so, to Buffaloes or something? Well, look, it was a, it was a three-day thing that uh, you know I was <laughs> able to help out, and I, I felt good about that. And then uh, when a guy left Inside Indiana magazine— uh, Ed Magoni, who's since uh, passed uh, passed away, the the publisher, uh, he Mike said, I know a guy who's covered IU and covered the Big Ten for the past several years. Why don't I see if you're interested? And my dad had been a subscriber to Inside Indiana Magazine for a long time, and I had even told him I would love the opportunity to do this. This would be a lot of fun if I this I would leave Pro Football Weekly and Basketball News and go from covering the NFL to cover IU football and basketball and live in Bloomington. I'd do that in a heartbeat. Wow! And yeah, that sounds real I, nice. I, 
Yeah, and so I, I uh, interviewed uh, with uh, Inside Indiana, and it was Inside Indiana and Pigs.com were partners on the website, and that's how I ended up with Pigs. Wow. All right, let's go back to your time covering NBA, NFL. What was the craziest story that you covered that you either ran or one that you back-pocketed because it was just too nuts and you couldn't put it out there? You know, it, it wasn't too it wasn't nuts. That wasn't the, the right word. Uh, what happened was uh, back when Tubby Smith was the head coach at Kentucky, uh, he, there was an incident after a game where uh, Kentucky players got into it with Tubby Smith's wife. And she was yelling at them to, to, for, for some reason, and they barked back. It, it created a, a huge problem. And our SEC correspondent told us about it. It wasn't something that he was able to run, wasn't able to do anything with, but he told us about it. Well, we called uh, Kentucky saying, hey, you got a comment about this? Right. And there was this whole thing. It, 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 it blew up right away about this is uh, this never happened. This is absolutely not true. And then as we continued to talk and say we're real solid on our sources, you know, they said, well, you know, it, uh, you know, it, it happened that it happened, but not exactly the way that you're saying. And I was just at this point. Just saying, you know, yes, let's do this. Let's run this story. It's Kentucky. A, Burn it down. It's, it's true. <laughs> First off, it's true. And that, that to me is more important than anything. It's true. And second, you know, go ahead. We're, we're a new magazine. You're able to make a name for yourself, but it's a true story. So there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, the powers that be at Basketball News at the time instead said, okay, if we let this slide, maybe we can get a, uh, a Q&A with Tubby Smith, and that'll help raise our profile as well. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, what if we did that? And I was furious, just absolutely furious. Because, you know, you're, you're 23, 24 years old, yeah. and you're gung-ho. You're going to take on the world. Yeah, you're, jer- and you're, then, jer- you're Woodward and Bernstein here. <laughs> I mean, you're, yeah, you're I mean, Ernie it, Pyle. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's a thing. You know, you, you want to get the story right, and the story was true and Kentucky said that didn't happen that didn't happen so then they the powers that be ended up agreeing to the to the story uh to the Q&A and then they said okay so we're gonna do the Q&A where you guys aren't gonna run that and uh the powers that be there said nope we're okay we're, we'll do that and he says good because that happened exactly the way you said it did <laughs> yeah but then the move is during the Q&A hey tubby what'd you think about your wife barking at the players <laughs> Like that's the I, first question. I was question. not allowed to be a. I was not allowed to be a part of that Q and A. I can tell you that much. <laughs> oh yeah, that's <laughs> they not all, fair. They all knew I was. I was just just furious about it because uh, to me, you you do the journalistic thing. You do the right thing. Yeah. And I understand that there's politics and everything that goes along with it. So that's the craziest thing that we we saw that we ended up you know just spiking in terms of a story. But I mean just. There, there's just tons of stuff that you see along the way that you you can't really write about. You can't really, you know, do anything about. It's just, you know, it, it is things that you see in an NBA locker room. It's, it's you know, just crazy things that you see that uh, you're just like, all right, well. For right, example. I'm, gonna, I, I'm for not example. going to be able to unsee that. For example, <laughs> I'll give you one. Yeah. I walk into um, the Bulls locker room at the time, and Ron Artest is World laying piece. on the floor. <laughs> and Meta World Peace, he's laying on the floor in the locker room. There's there's nobody else in the locker room. I don't know where everybody else is. 
He is in the middle of the locker room naked, getting <laughs> stretched by a, a trainer. And anyway, it was just like a regular stretching routine, but it's in the middle of the floor of the main locker room, and our test is they're naked, just getting stretched. <laughs> and I thought, what the hell is going on here? That's, that's absolutely crazy. There's another one, Sacramento Kings locker room, uh, before a game. Scott Pollard was a forward for the Kings at the time. And uh, he was a little bit crazy, if people remember him. This would have been 2002, three, right in there. Uh, he used to have, like, samurai hair. And, you know, he sure. was, you know, from Kansas. Oh, yeah. He was, he was, uh, and so he is there. He is wearing just compression shorts. He is laying on his stomach uh, in the locker room. He has broken up, like, a Hershey chocolate bar. And he has it laid out in front of him. And he is sitting there with his hands out. And he's picking up pieces of chocolate with his face, <laughs> then like le- leaning, then then leaning like up, doing like a yoga, like lean lean back, uh, and stretching his back and his his abs, swallowing this chocolate, going ah! making bird noises. <laughs> he's making bird noises. Meanwhile, Vladi Divots is sitting there. He is naked. With his legs crossed, just watching and just laughing. And I'm like, where are the dancing bears at Cirque du Soleil? You know, like, sent out what happened here. Right. It, it was, it was, it was, you see some things. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, there's nothing more, more disturbing than gigantic Shaquille O'Neal uh, talking to a bunch of reporters, looking right at you and mouthing the words, I love you. And I want to, ha- and I want to have your baby. Now, I thought, oh, that's not good. But I realized he was talking to the woman behind me. <laughs> and so that was uh, that was another one that it was just like, oh, okay, yeah, there's that there, too. There might be one thing more disturbing than that. Well, okay, yeah. So I, I, I will tell this story. Yes. Because anybody who knows me has heard this story. And this is uh, a story. I, I will not even mention the, the, the player's name. I won't do that. But... Um, it was the Seattle Supersonics uh, are, visited the Bulls, and, I, and Hersey Hawkins was uh, a former Chicago Bull who was then with uh, uh, the Sonics. And he had a big game, and so, you know, you're all there. There's always a bunch of reporters, a big scrum of people around Hersey Hawkins' locker, and I am kind of in, on the side. I am on one knee and just, you know, putting my, my recorder uh, up uh, towards his face so that I could record it because it was it was a story that I was doing. Uh, he has a teammate that comes that comes over around gets around to everybody. He's like, "Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me." He's wearing only a towel. He drops the towel, and as I'm leaning over, I see something <laughs> swing in front of my face, <laughs> and I'm like, "Hmm." Yeah, that almost just happened there. So I just kind of lean my head around, trying to fool around. I'm like, hey, you want to be careful with that thing? And the guy's like, oh, sorry, sorry. And and later on, I'm like, okay, what do I do there? What if I accidentally get hit in the forehead with what I'm fully certain almost hit me in the forehead? I mean, I could put, I mean, you're never going to hear the end of that. I mean, it's almost like you have to go 
lock the doors to the locker room and then it's just a bloodbath and just take what you know that's that for that because you never hear the end of that you know that i would have to make that my twitter handle you know, just, <laughs> I, that'd, that'd be the only thing i could do so that that was just some of the stuff that now and now they're like you're not allowed in the indiana locker room and i'm like oh thank god because i've i've seen far too many things in locker rooms i don't need to see more so what year did you start officially with pigs uh, 05, 2005, 2006. So I got here and uh, everything went to hell immediately because Mike Davis got fired. Uh, let's see. We, I In the first couple of years that I was here, there had been four head basketball coaches, two university presidents, two athletic directors, and uh, two football coaches, one of whom died. Hmm. And that was, you know, four years after I arrived here. So it, it was... Uh, I'm not saying it's my fault. I'm just saying it's not not my fault. Yes, exactly. There is no proof that it is not your fault. Exactly. <laughs> there, there, there. I, you know, I, I just have to go ahead and own that. Yeah, yeah. it, it well, very and, well and, could and be I me. Mean, it, I think you know who knows what it's like to cover Indiana University basketball when it's successful. Certainly, Eric and I just started doing this and. Since the time you've been there, well, there was like a good year, one really good year and a couple conference titles. But was there something exciting about it being so tumultuous in those first few years? Or was it more draining because of the negativity? And you were a fan. It was draining. And you were it, a fan. It was draining. Sorry, go ahead. Answer that again. Oh. I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it, it was draining. There's no question about it. You know, people say uh, that, you know, reporters get excited when there are bad things happening. And that is not my experience. We far prefer, because ultimately all sports writers are fans to begin with. They got into this business because they enjoy watching good basketball or good football. That's what they enjoy. And covering a good team is so much better than covering a bad team. Now, there's far more storylines if it's a bad team, but to me, that it's not enjoyable. It's, it's, it's not something where you're happy or excited to go and go to this press conference, uh, especially those years, you know, Crean's first couple of years when they were so bad. Um, it's, like, it's like all you had to do was uh, insert different names and a different score, and it was the same story, and you knew that was going to be the case in November. You know, Crean's first year especially, you're like, oh, man, they just choked on a 20-point lead at home to Lipscomb. Uh, it's going to be gonna be a little rough here, and it's not, not exactly the same. Uh, that said, I also think that, uh, you know, when you, when you do have that turmoil, uh, you are able to, I don't want to say bond with players. That's not the right way, but to a certain extent— Players that can use you as a sounding board, you know, if you if you if you build their trust and I, I, I never like set out to get anybody. And to me, if somebody says this is off the record, there are some people that are like nothing is off the record. And I just don't operate like that. I'm, I'm old school like that. Uh, I, if, if I burn you once. It, everyone's going to know about it and it, you know it's going to be clear you're not going to be able to uh talk to that guy so i take that that kind of stuff very seriously and then you know um so therefore people have been willing to confide in me along the way and uh i uh uh it helps it has helped bring me context for the whole both sides of the story thing um you mentioned earlier a bigger picture i think part of that where, where i get that from is being able to talk to somebody in in the hallway outside and ask them a question, and they know that I'm not asking them to try to trick them or try to get, to burn them with it, but I can find out exactly what it is 
you know, that, that they were thinking at that time. And they'll tell me the honest truth. And then next time I might have uh, a little bit better context of where they're coming from, what their thought process is. And then I'm able to just kind of analyze it. I think uh, not better than other people, but certainly it, it makes me maybe understand more what they were trying to do. So get, because you have covered so many different regimes at Indiana, let's start with the one that, that, was there when you got there. How would you describe Mike Davis as a person, as a coach? What was your interaction with him, and and how would you uh, relay that to us? The most striking thing about Mike Davis had to do with when he came back a few years ago as the coach at Texas Southern. We were really excited to see Mike Davis. Cause we And he was excited to see us. I really felt that way, that he was happy to see us. Fans were happy to see him. Uh, Mike Davis, I was there for his last year. And one of the first things that I did uh, at for Inside Indiana, I had written a column for the Inside Indiana Basketball Yearbook saying, basically, look, Indiana is going to need a run to the Sweet 16 or something like that in order to really get fans on Mike Davis's side. And one of the things that he said right off the bat was uh, he pulled me over at a uh, um, at a practice. We were allowed to go to practices, Mike Davis's practices. And he said, you know how hard it is to get to a sweet 16? You know how hard it is to get to an elite eight? I said, I know. And I also know that as an IU alum, I know what people are thinking about you. And you you hear it, too. I'm just being honest. You know, that that's if you want to win these folks over, this is what you have to do. And I, and so one of my things is I never write anything I wouldn't say to the person's face. And so that's why they, and when they when they you get called out on it, you're able to back yourself up because you have no problem of, of, of what they have to say about it or, you know, it, it just it's it's not a problem. And so that was like one of my first interactions with him was I was as honest as possible. I said, I'm not trying to stir up trouble. I'm also not trying to say anything that other people don't believe. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, reinventing the wheel here. People are saying this and I'm telling you that this is what you're going to need to do. And uh, so from then on, right off the bat, we, him and I got along just fine because I was honest with him. I didn't try to hem and haw and, you know, this. I, I was honest with him. And I've been able to do that with every coach that uh, Indiana has had there. And uh, it has paid off uh, for me. And in that, I think that I am I, I, I'm somewhat respected, uh, you know, just I'm not going to burn people. Uh, if you tell me something's off the record, it's off the record. And um, and that's how it is. And so that's uh, uh, Mike Davis helped set the tone uh, at Indiana because I, I really uh, appreciated the situation he was in. I know a lot of people didn't want Mike Davis to be there, weren't happy with Mike Davis being there, said he only went to the title game with Bob Knight's players, which is absolutely not true. Uh, and I think that that, uh, uh, I, I understood where he was at and what his situation was, that uh, he was put in a in a situation where he, he probably shouldn't have been the head coach at Indiana. After they went to the title game, he probably should have left right then. But he didn't. And so he tried to make the best because how do you walk away from the Indiana job at that point in your career? Um, and so, I, again, just just being honest with people made a difference. And, and, you know, the players were not happy as time went on. And uh, two of them accused us of being racist against Mike Davis. We want him to lose just because he's black. 
And wow. uh, I looked at the one at the players. This is after a uh, practice. And I pulled up the sleeve on my right shirt. I have the IU logo tattooed on my right arm. Uh, I got it before I was covering IU. I, I always joke that when I get old and my skin starts sagging, I'm going to look like I graduated from Wisconsin. But, uh, you know, I, I went to, yeah, I graduated from IU and I'm proud of it. I'll never not be proud of that. I said, so I have this here on my, uh, on my arm. You transferred here from Auburn. So don't, 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 don't tell me about what it's like or what we want or what kind of, is that element out there? Yeah, absolutely it is. But not from anybody covering this team, and you're wrong on that. Wow. And uh, so that, that was uh, uh, not uncomfortable year. That's not the way that I'd put it. But uh, I certainly thought that Mike Davis did the best job that he could for his experience level and the situation he had been put in when Knight uh, uh, was fired because he, he did an incredible job with those first two teams and, and brought in some good recruits, you know, considering what Indiana basketball had just gone through, I think he did, you know, a, a decent job for, for what he did. And, you know, we've, as time has gone on, we've seen how tough it is for, for people to go through that transition and be successful. Mike Davis was successful through that transition, I give him a lot of credit for well, that. And I think I appreciate more now after having talked to Jared Jeffries and A.J. Moye and Tom Coverdale about how uh, forward-thinking Mike Davis was even on the offensive end. That They were like, yeah, he had over 100 set plays we ran. And I think a lot of stuff, you know, I was in my early 20s at that point um, and probably more drunk than I was, you know, paying attention <laughs> to what was really being executed, more interested in the results. And, uh, you know, I think as we've seen him climb back up, you know, go, slide down the ranks of college basketball, and now he's been climbing back up, uh, It's a, it's been a fascinating journey to watch. And, you know, clearly his time was was done at IU and can't really have regrets on that. But then as he went, they brought in Kelvin Sampson. Now, what what was your take on that initially, and how did that evolve over his brief stay in Bloomington? Well, I, I, first, I want to start first with uh, going back to uh, the end of Mike Davis's tenure oh, please, at yes, IU. Yes. Okay, uh, there was a game where Indiana lost at Wisconsin. It was not not a pretty game at all. Uh, he loses uh, the, the Indiana loses the game, and after the game, we're sitting around waiting. Usually, the visitor will come in first, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And he hadn't announced his resignation, anything like that. Uh, but we're waiting and waiting, and finally, Bo Ryan comes in, and uh, you know, so so we he goes first and and does what he has to do, and then after he leaves, we're waiting and waiting, and finally, Mike Davis comes in, maybe an hour after the game. Mm. He comes in, he does his press conference, then he goes out, um, you know, into the concourse to go back to uh, to the bus or wherever. And I saw him walking, and he had his arm around his wife, and they were walking so slow, and he looked like a man who was completely at peace. And I really felt that right then he had decided, I'm done here. I'm done here. You know, I, I will resign. They will, you know, whatever. I'm not, I'm not fighting this fight anymore. I'm done here. And it was just that, that look of peace that I saw on him. It told me there's a guy who knows, you know, either what time it is, 
but you know, or just he he's realized that I have to move on here. This is not healthy for me or my family anymore. And we've seen that happen with a couple of coaches now to where it just gets to the point where it's so toxic it can't be successful at this point going forward. So they fire him and uh, then they open up the search and Kelvin Sampson is the guy that they hire. But wait, before and, before they hire Kelvin, what's it like covering that's your first coaching search at a place like Indiana. That's a huge deal. It has at that point it had only happened once in what? the last 30 years. And it wasn't really right. a search. It was just like, okay, that guy's going to No, I get mean, it. I mean, the Samson one was the first search. Right. So I'm not yeah. even counting the Davis, Davis one. one yeah. But the last search was Bobby Knight mm-hmm. in, you know, early 70s. What was it like for you covering that search? How how did you get sources on that? What names were you hearing? Uh, what was that like? Well, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, that was a long time ago, boy. <laughs> and a lot of water is going <laughs> under the bridge since then, boy. You're not that old, Ken. You're not that old. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to remember what some of the names were uh, that were trotted out there. I keep thinking John Beeline's one of the names. Yep, that's what we've uh, heard. That 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 might have been out there. Um, I know that. Uh, um, I don't remember if Brad Brownlee was one of the guys that time around. Um, I, I I I I just don't remember. Right. Greg Marshall. I want to. Fe- I feel like um, may have been one of the names, but we've been through so many different coaching searches that yeah, they all run uh, together. That might have been later. <laughs> uh, you know, who knows? But um, you know, I, one of the names that uh, you heard right at the end that they kept kind of buttoned up was Kelvin Sampson, and then they hire him, and I just thought to myself, why? Why this? This is this is not the guy. You know, this is you hope that, OK, he's going to realize that the things that he got in trouble for the way that he operated Oklahoma, he doesn't have to do those things here. And I didn't like the stain that was involved in him coming. Um, I felt that uh, it wasn't a move that was driven by the administration, uh, the the athletic department administration. I think they they wanted to go a different direction and um, their hand was a little bit forced by, you know, higher ups and whether it be the president or, or, or whoever wanted to go uh, this direction of Calvin Sampson. And um, then they brought him in. And it's never good when during your introductory press conference, you have multiple questions about the scandals that you're leaving and the issues that you've had in the past. At a place like Indiana, it just feels like such a bad way to get off to anything. And, you know, and it's just not something that is is done at Indiana, or Indiana fans hadn't really dealt with um, that. And you could say what you want to about Mike Davis. He certainly seemed to play on the up and up. And I didn't hear a lot, a lot of whole uh, uh, shaky things about him. Kelvin Sampson, that wasn't the case right from the start. So right off the bat, you just felt... Um, that there, there's something wrong here. This isn't how it's it's done at Indiana. Did you and, uh, did you ever get an explanation from somebody involved with that decision of like, well, we know about the past, but this is why we think it was the right move. Did you hear a rationale that you could even understand coming from their point of view? Well, he promised him that that was in the past. That that wasn't going to be a problem going forward. He had learned his lesson. And to me, that wasn't good enough. But I understand why they hoped that they would be able to bring in this good young coach. And there's no question, from an X's and O's standpoint, Kelvin Sampson is an excellent coach. Yep. He's an excellent coach who brought, um, you know, on-court accountability uh, to the program. Not off-court accountability in any way, (laughs) shape, or form. 
But on court, I, I remember him sitting in a press conference uh, talking about how DJ White had been just terrible that night and really needs to decide what he's going to do with his basketball career because he has all the talent in the world, but he's got to make things happen. And DJ White was sitting 18 inches to his left. He was willing to call people out like that and and make them have to just deal with this criticism from their head basketball coach. And I like that part of it. I don't like the other stuff to where once you're not around, hey, I don't care what you do. And that to me is where, um, you know, from an X's and O's standpoint, Calvin Sampson was an excellent hire. But X's and O's isn't everything, especially at Indiana. And uh you ended up paying the price for it. When did you know this was not going to work? When did you know that the the die had been cast and it was just a matter of time? Uh just when when the second round of uh, of sanctions came. Yeah, that that you know that 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 was right off the bat. You know when when he had had that I- the issues and then all of a sudden there's more violations. It's like, come on, man. You know how how could you possibly, you know, have this going on? I don't understand it. Now, one thing that people always uh, kind of snickered about or joked about or or made fun of Calvin Sampson about had to do with the phone calls and him saying that he couldn't get a cell uh, signal out by his house. And everybody made fun of Calvin Sampson for that. And I can tell you that is 100% true because Calvin Sampson, before his first uh, uh, season, he had a golf outing with the media and uh, there were his assistant coaches were there. Some former players were there. Uh, and afterwards, we all went to Calvin Sampson's house and he had a little cookout. And we were able to, to talk to him a little bit. And when I was at Calvin Sampson's house, I was trying to call my wife and tell her that I was when I would be home or what, there was some reason I had to call her. And I couldn't because I couldn't get a cell phone signal. And now there could have been other things that he could have done to boost the signal at his house or gotten a different cell phone. Yeah, <laughs> something. But I, I could tell I could tell people from a, a pure cell phone uh, standpoint. No, I couldn't get a, uh, a signal at his house either. But, and I got to tell you about here's a good story for people at the golf outing. Um, it was shaping up to be one of the most uncomfortable rounds of golf I was ever going to have in my life. Uh, we, we were with a former, a prominent former basketball player. I'll say that. Was he really tall? And really, really he tall? Was, he was tall. And, and, was, uh, and we, he, we have interviewed him. I'll just say that. Yeah. So um, we're going down the first fairway. And, you know, everybody hits their first ball. Go to the the ball now. We're waiting for the guys in front of us to get off the tee, and we were going with uh, assistant coach Jeff Meyer, and this former player looks at Jeff Meyer and says, "You and your boss shouldn't be here, and I'm about to tell you why." And I thought, "Oh, this is great. We've only got about three and a half hours left of this. This is going just fantastic. All right, let, let's crank it up. Let's do this." And uh, he proceeded to go on and on about why they shouldn't be here. They have no business here. Uh, you know, I don't know. He said, I don't know you from uh, from anybody, but you should not be here. Uh, you, you this they should have gone a different. I mean, it just it was starting and they were riding in the same cart. It's like, wow, this is going to be just amazing. And then after the se- after the first hole, uh, he got a phone call and had to leave because he said he had a problem at one of his businesses and he was done. 
And so I, it ended up not being the most uncomfortable round of golf, but boy, it, it started that way. So the whole day was just fascinating because you had that, um, you had just a, a mess, and you got a chance to to know. I got a chance to know Jeff Myers, uh, you know, pretty well during that uh, that couple of hours that we were golfing with him because it was just the three of us. It was me, Pete DePremio, who's a longtime beat guy, and um, and Jeff Myers uh, golfing. And uh, then we went to Kelvin's house and there was no cell phone. And, and you know, I had no idea that that was going to end up being something. But, uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of the start. He hadn't coached a game yet. And we already had all that kind of stuff. And it's like, wow, if you were looking for some kind of hire that was going to bring everybody together, get everybody on the same page and go forward. Indiana could not have done a worse job of of making a hire than they did with Calvin Sampson, who was just a bad fit and really just just deepened the divide that had already existed. Uh, that story reminds me of two things. One, I was a big fan of that TV sitcom with Robert Guillaume. Do you remember that show? Yeah, I um, think that it was a one-word name. I think the name he, of that show he, was Benson. He, he was a butler, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, I think the name of the show was yeah. Benson. A it great was show. Benson. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Great show. And then the other thing I wanted to say is, and I think you will agree with this, if the only thing Kelvin Sampson was guilty of was phone calls, Indiana may have withstood that storm. But there was a whole bunch of other stuff happening that hadn't quite leaked out that everybody inside, including the reporters, and I'm assuming you, knew was happening that leaked out afterwards. But the program was a mess inside. A lot of a lot due to the fact of what you said before that off court accountability was not something Kelvin Sampson was concerned about. And so I, I do think, and I've heard this from various people, that if it was just the phone calls, they may have stood through that with him. But it was the phone calls plus failed drug tests, plus twenty Fs on the team, plus just bad guys that were doing some very questionable things that just made it so that Indiana could not stand by him. It sounds like the locker room was dangerous, like going to a bad part of town. (laughs) Would you agree with that assessment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know that, uh, you know, I, I, you guys talked to Rab Johns a few weeks ago, and he, him and I have talked about this, and, you know, at the time we were talking about it, that it was, uh, it's like Capone in tax evasion. Right. You know, right. they got that's what they got him for. <laughs> that's what they were willing to, uh, uh, to move on him with that. And, you know, all this other stuff, it was irrelevant because he, this is, he's out of the picture, and this is how, how, you, how they, they got rid of him. Uh, but it was far from the worst thing that they they had and you know during the season you hear things but getting confirmation of it is a much much different thing to where you can print it right. well and, and like i said i in your role at that point and then going forward with new hire and up to present day what do you see your role as like objectively covering the state of the indiana program you know, but when something like that's going on that's so toxic and poisonous, do you feel kind of like, you know, journalists when the freedom of speech is under fire? Do you feel like a call to action that you need to put out articles and insights to let people know there's there's a problem that needs to be fixed inside the program? Because I, I was not following Peaks at the time. Eric got me into it later in the game. Certainly, I would be reading every word of something like that now. But did you guys internally at Peaks be like, look, man, we need to we need to let people know there's a real problem here? 
Well, again, from a journalistic standpoint, uh, if you're going to report on stuff like that, you damn well better be right. And you better have your solid sources and, and everything that goes along with it. And, you know, hearing things is one thing. You know, hear, hearing uh, people talk about it uh, is is one thing, but then getting people to go on record and talk about it and being able to prove what you're writing. Uh, to me, there's no difference between, uh, you know, newspaper journalism or, you know, pigs.com journalism or anything like that. It's it's not a rumor mill. It's not a, not a rumor monger situation when you're talking about those kind of things. But what's the difference uh, between like a source, an unnamed source? You know, say in in your your Kentucky situation with Tubby Smith's wife, you know, compared to you're talking to somebody inside the program who doesn't want to go on the record. You know, where where do you guys draw that line of what's rumor and what's a reliable source? Is it proximity to the program being inside the program, being a, a firsthand eyewitness to something? Yeah, pretty much. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be that, but it has. It better be somebody who's super duper close and is willing to talk about it. And uh, you have to look at each source, and you you might believe those sources, uh, but again, it is you you take that uh, that information, that context, and use it towards trying to prove something. And it's it's far more difficult uh, to prove you know certain things uh, along the way. And yeah, you could do it, but it just has to be. How far are you willing to go uh, to do this? And there's never a situation where uh, it's a matter of, well, we need to protect the program. That's never once been a thing that uh, that Peegs has talked about, that Rab Johns has talked about, that the beat guys have talked about. That's just not how we're, we're doing it. We don't we're not actively out to get somebody. But if you hear something we're going to uh, at least investigate it and see who we could call, who we could talk to about it, and uh, try to get uh, our sources do good journalism. And um, you know, when you're dealing with uh, with some of this stuff, it's it's more difficult uh, to do to get people nailed down on that. And um, you know, you you can't just go with, well, this guy told me that he talked to a guy that that you, you can't do that. You now you could go and somebody say, hey, I heard this, and if you if you don't have somebody who's willing uh, to go on the record, go solid on the record, to me that that is where it gets a little bit uh, uh, more shaky. But you know, you, you hear stuff you know all the time about things, and uh, you have to try to decide um, what's solid. Can I go forward to it? Am I right? Because if I'm if I'm not right, that to me is is uh, the bigger problem. Because from that point on. Anything you write, it it is people are going to remember what happened uh, that time that you were wrong, and it's it's going to be it. So it is a fine line. There's no question, you know, of, of trying to decide when we're solid enough to go forward because we know this happened. Uh, it it's it's not always uh, you know tremendously easy. All right, then they hire Tom Crean, and I don't want to go through. All this. I mean, we don't. There are. No, there's not enough gigabytes on my computer to record all the Tom Crean stuff that we could do. But Ken, give me a great behind-the-scenes Tom Crean story that encapsulates what kind of person Tom Crean was. I am so tremendously fascinated by Tom Crean. I, I, I really am. I think that he is such an interesting guy. Because he is such a, uh, uh, just, there, there's so much to him. He changed a number of times uh, during his time at Indiana. And I, I'm going, I'm telling you this, it's not something that I haven't told him to his face. 
before. Uh, and it's just, he came in and he was hired and he was one person. And then he shifted his viewpoint and he was another person. And then he was another person. And then he was another person. It, it, it is amazing to me that a guy who uh, can be successful and has put together, you know, really quality teams, knows how to build a roster, can get so distracted by the smallest of things that it, that he completely loses focus on it. We could just look at, at big picture about his recruiting efforts. I really feel like he recruited early in his time at IU building a roster. He needed he had was putting together a puzzle and he did an absolutely fantastic job of putting together the puzzle that gets you guys like Sheehy and Jordan Hulls and Oladipo and Watford and Elston and Matt Roth and you know th- those kind of guys that uh, that fit what he was trying to do. And then when you get to number one in the country, it all falls apart because you completely change the way you're doing things and lose lose any kind of vision of what your roster is going to be like. And he, he would he would tell me, you know, you don't know who we're recruiting. You, you don't know uh, what we were trying to do. It's like, I work for Peegs, man. You know, I, what, what are you talking about? You know, I, I do know who you were recruiting. And he is... Um, and I'll give you one example of how granular he would get. Uh, it was just during games, he might not like the placement of the big heads that they had. And so he would talk to people about, in game, talk to people about why are the big heads spread out like that? You've got to get those back to to, to where they, they need to be. You've got to get them in uh, and, and do that. And there's an, another time uh, he was talking about how he had heard that uh, the colors red and green are more distracting, and he wanted to get more big heads with the colors red and green in them. And this was at a post-game press conference, and uh, it was right around Christmas. And sure enough, the next game, they had some red and green Christmas presents that were in uh, among the big heads. But to me, you know, you're, you're the head coach at Indiana University. The big heads are an interesting little thing. It wasn't unique to Indiana. I think San Diego State had done them previously. I'd seen them Mike Davis's last year during the NCAA tournament. They're uh, somebody else that, Indi- that Indiana didn't play, but somebody else had them. So it wasn't like Indiana's idea. Uh, it, it was, what are you doing? Yeah, Why are you care? Why do you care? It's lunacy. It's total it, it, lunacy. It's, it's, it's 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 crazy because you don't that is that is unimportant. It's the it's he could have spent that time nothing. coming up with a better inbounds play or defense <laughs> yeah. or maybe work on some defense and not deflections. Well, no, you know, here's the thing. I'm not saying that he doesn't know how to coach an offense or be a successful coach because he does. Indiana got to number one, went to back-to-back Sweet 16s, won a couple of Big Ten championships. He knows how to make things happen. It's just that focus that 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 is is lacking. He he's easily distracted, looking here, looking there. Um, and again, what 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 disturbed me the most though was just how different he was over time. How he changed. I got really concerned about Tom Crean um, the year after the summer after they lost to Syracuse in the Sweet Sixteen. 
Uh, I went to an IU baseball game. I was covering the baseball game at Bart Kaufman Stadium, and I was walking behind Crane uh, early in the game. Wasn't talking to him. He was just walking through the crowd. And previously, Crane had really been engaged with people and, and, you know, just shaking hands, taking pictures, all of that kind of stuff. And look, people were not happy about them losing to Syracuse. But it it wasn't near at the point of how toxic it would be. Uh, it wasn't wasn't at that point, and um, he really just had his head down. People were trying to talk to him. He was ignoring them, and it was just so different than the cheerleader that we saw uh, early in his time. That was when I thought, "What is that about? That uh oh, that isn't okay." And he had been so tight that year, to the point that after. Uh, um, that summer, when I got a chance to sit down and talk to him, he seemed more relaxed when I was talking to him. I said, good, last year you were a piano wire. I mean, just you you were so uptight. There's no way that's healthy to, to go through uh, a season like that. And and so that it was that kind of thing to where— Like almost a he, victim of his own success? Well, I, I think it was—I uh, um, don't want to use the word paranoia. That's not that's not the right word. I think that—I mean, think about it. Tom Crean is the head coach at Marquette, goes to a Final Four, becomes the head coach at Indiana University. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that he is the third most successful sports coach in his family. <laughs> right. And, right. And how, how much of a struggle is that when, when you have, uh, you know, a, a guy, you know, your, your brother-in-laws are, are the Harbaugh's and uh, not exactly not known for busting people's chops. And, uh, you know, here you, you have Tom, who's, who's a successful basketball coach and, uh, you know, has to deal with that, never played the game. Jim Harbaugh played the game. Uh, he, you know, he, he just, Tom Crean didn't play the game. And I think that that got to him a little bit. He, he needed to prove that he was, um, that he knew what he was doing, even when people knew that he knew what he was doing. And that created issues because then he would change philosophy depending. I mean, I remember the one year he was talking about now, oh, we're, we're suddenly this year, we're going to start running a European style of um, of uh, basketball. I was a guy that was the coach for the Cavs for a year, I think, yeah, had been David really Blatt. successful in Europe. Blatt. What's that? Yeah, it was David Blatt. Yeah, yeah, Dave Blatt. Um, that he'd been really successful and that's what we're going to uh, uh, to be running this year. And I thought... Well, you sure as hell better have been recruiting for that for the last couple of years if that was your plan, because that's not going to work. You can't all of a sudden decide going into this season, we're going to change the way we play. And that that again, when you're when you're shifting as much on the fly uh, as as he was and going into an offseason with a bunch of guys oversigned with the attitude of ah, it's just going to work out. I don't know, man. That's you need more of a direction, more of a solid rudder. You have to be able to to bring stability to the program, and that's one thing that, especially as as he started to be successful or started to at least get out of those first three year doldrums, the program lost the rudder a little bit because of changing ways that he approached recruiting, changing play, ways that he approached. Um, people, the way he approached the media early on. Uh, and I, I hear, I feel like I'm not even letting you guys ask any kind of questions no, here, it's okay. this is great. Uh, but you know, it's, uh, he would have these, uh, couple of media days 
where the media would come in and um, and you know they'd put us through workouts or we'd have a basketball tournament. It was it was fun and you know they brought in old players and uh, it was it was a fun thing. And you again, it's it's a, one of those things where you just get to know people a little bit better, uh, get to know them as people. And yeah, you know that you're being worked because then, you know, hey, they think that you're not going to uh, uh, to be as critical of them if, if they do this. It doesn't work that way. But they, they had these things and uh, it was it was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, so here it is. They get good and those things stop. And a couple of years go by, and all of a sudden, Indiana has, has missed the tournament, and they're struggling. And all of a sudden, hey, we're going to have a media day this this year. And it's like, okay, at this point, you can't do that and then come back, you know, cut it off and then come back. Because you're really showing yourself that this is what we are trying to do, is just trying to curry favor. And that's not going to work. And it didn't work before because... We're journalists. We're not fans. We're not there. We're not, you know, it's nice to get to know you. It's nice to be able to uh, to really chat with you. But ultimately, it has nothing to do with how you treat us. It's how you're running your program. And that to me was uh, was the thing. Uh, Tom Crean saw it as his program. And he's right. He's the head coach. It is his program. But ultimately, no matter how successful he is, that program belongs to the fans and it belongs to the university. And when you have things like, uh, you know, the uh, Devin Davis situation or Hunter Mascara Perea uh, and the issues that they had and, you know, guys failing drug tests and, and, you know, things of that nature, at some point you've got to realize that people aren't upset with you because of what's happening on the court. They're upset with you because this is not how they want their program run. They don't want you running their program this way because there's an ownership that fans feel about a program. And so when things are going poorly, it isn't a a direct criticism of you as a human being. It's a criticism of the job that that you're doing. And that's what I feel like he never could really separate was criticism of the job that you're doing with criticism of him, of him as a person. And, you know, it just, it pained me because I, I liked Tom Crean. I, I, I was, I was, I had talked to Tom Crean. Cody Zeller was making uh, an official visit. And so Cody, you know, they, they, the assistant coaches are, are texting with Cody, seeing where he is. And Cody was just pulling into the assembly hall parking lot. And I was there just, just finishing up, uh, uh, you know, one, it, yeah, I don't know if it was an official visit. It was a visit. He was coming to cook hall and Cody Zeller was coming and his daughter had like a plate of noodles or something like that, like chicken noodles or something. And she dumped this on the carpet. And everybody was freaking out because they're trying to put their best foot forward. And now there is a kid crying there. There's, uh, you know, somebody uh, trying to scoop up uh, uh, and clean the carpet before Cody gets out of his car and gets inside because you're trying to to show this as, as uh, much as possible. And, you know, it's just it, it was chaos. It was it was, you know, just a little bit of chaos that went with the with the program. But he was trying to just make it as, as, as normal as possible. And, um, it just kind of, Hey, you know, it's a family. I mean, my daughter was here, my family atmosphere, uh, and, and trying to make it as, as easy, uh, to deal with as possible. But 
by that same token, there was just always so much chaos around the program that uh, it, it was just interesting to see how he changed over time from a guy who could roll with things a little bit easier to a guy who couldn't roll with anything. And, and that, to me, when he uh, was fired and took that year off, I was thrilled for him. He needed that year to decompress from the IU fishbowl because that's something that uh, that he just needed as as a human being. He needed to take a step back and kind of look at uh, at uh, you know just what what he did and how he went about things. And I'll give him credit when he got fired. Um, he texted a number of us saying, "What did I do wrong? What did you think I did wrong?" He was reaching out to try to just kind of get an idea, and I give him a lot of credit for that because it, it's a little bit of introspection that hopefully helped him become a better coach when he got an opportunity. All right, so then we get to Archie Miller, and rather than go through kind of some minutia on Archie, let's get to what we really wanted to get to, which is the opus that you put together several months ago about the state of Indiana's program, where you really took an in-depth look at where are we and where have we been for the last 25 years? You took a 25-year cross-section of college basketball. You focused on basically the Power Five, right, where Indiana, so you're comparing apples to apples. And you looked at a variety of different categories to see where do we stack up against various teams. To just give some perspective to, I think, lunatic Hoosier fans like Ward and I, to try to get a little bit of a sense for where are we What's realistic for where we should be right now? Where can we get to over time? And just to give some highlights of this. And and g- yeah. give them the highlights. But any listener who has not read this article yes. by Ken has got to read it. It is the absolute most comprehensive look at the state of Indiana basketball over the last 25 and years. And we will, when we post this podcast... Ken, in the, the message boards on it, we should repost the link to your article so people can go back and look at it again. But in this article, you break down wins, winning percentage, conference titles, conference tournament titles, NCAA appearances, Sweet 16, Elite Eights, Final Fours, and average wins per year. So just to give some highlights here, when just looking at wins over the last 25 years, Indiana ranks... 42nd among these power five schools just to tell you what we're who we're sandwiched in between west virginia and dayton dayton is interesting because of Mm -hmm, archie miller mm -hmm. in winning percentage we're ranked 44 ranked right in between iowa state and michigan conference titles tied for or i think tied for 37th right in between oregon and tennessee i think the pattern that you start to see here is teams that we as Indiana fans think we are so much superior than, or at least want to be. But the truth is when you go down the road of all these categories, we just aren't where anybody would like to think we should be. And I guess the question I want to ask you to start this off is, when you started this project, you had to have a thesis in mind. What was your goal with this? Was it really just to statistically lay it out? Or was there something happening in the fan base and the conversation that made you want to recalibrate everybody's thinking? That's a, it's a good question. I, I came up with the idea in January. I was just curious. You know, we, we, we look at those banners, and there's the five banners that are up there, and they are fantastic. 
And we look at uh, just the status that everybody, Indiana fans, consider uh, just where Indiana is. And you start to think about how long it's been since you win a championship. And who Indiana measures themselves with, Kansas, Kentucky, Duke, Carolina, Arizona, Connecticut, you know, these are are teams that uh, you consider, you know, the blue bloods of college basketball. And you're around Indiana, and you feel like you belong in that that uh, that argument. And I was like, just just where I just thought to myself, I wonder where it actually ranks. And I want to have a, a long enough stretch of time to where it creates ebbs and flows for every program out there. Uh, I didn't want to just start right when Bob Knight got fired because to me that uh, that that is was too severe a drop off um, and too much had gone on. I wanted to know when things started to go bad for Indiana and when when they where they ranked among their peers, what their actual peers are in uh, college basketball. And uh, I one of the one of the things that that kind of. Uh, I thought about a lot, and this is going to sound weird uh, to fans, is DePaul University and DePaul basketball. Now, I grew up in the Chicago area in the, uh, you know, I was a kid in the, I was born in 73. So when I was just learning about college basketball and and really falling in love with it, uh, DePaul was on the Chicago news all the time. And Ray Meyer was the coach and that he was replaced by Joey Meyer and DePaul fans really felt that DePaul basketball was a national power. And some years they were. And then when we got when I got to basketball news as time went on, people still considered in Chicago DePaul basketball to be a national program. And that was madness to me. That was absolute madness. Because there's there's no way that you could consider them in the same breath as some of those other teams. So as I was thinking about where Indiana is I, I, it was kind of remembering how people would talk about DePaul, and I thought, well, at my age, at that time, I was about 25 years old. So let's look, let's look back to people who are 25 years old now. How do they see the program? What, what has their experience been? And that's what I was able to do is go back and uh, and do just just crunch a ton of data. And it was uh, it was it, it took a, a quite a, a few weeks for me to compile all the data because uh, I was able to put together for it was a total, I think, of 106 teams is what it was. And uh, of those uh, 102 programs, it was overall wins, overall winning percentage, regular season conference championships, conference tournament championships, NCAA tournament appearances, NCAA tournament Sweet 16 appearances, Elite 8 appearances, Final Fours, NCAA tournament championships, and average wins per season, and average losses per season. And then I did that for, uh, for just for the Big Ten as well. Because that's the other thing is, yeah, there's the national level, but against Big Ten teams, where do you do you stand? You know what 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 is the uh, uh, your peers in the Big Ten alone? And uh, it, it was really striking to me just how uh, yeah you had uh, those those rough years with Crean. You know there's there's no question that that those were some tough years. Um, you had Mike Davis's last couple of years which weren't great, uh, but you also had some about Bob Knight's last few years that were not great, and. The other thing that uh, that I really learned from it, outside of the fact that Xavier had 96 more wins 
during that time than Indiana, which was stunning to me that they had almost 100 more wins than Indiana over that time, uh, is just the fact that when you think about it, when Tom Crean took over, literally the only thing that attached Indiana to its glorious past was Assembly Hall, the fans, and the uniform. And that's it. We were essentially an expansion college basketball program in 2008-2009. And I would tell people then, there's no guarantee that Indiana will ever be back to what it was. And essentially, we've seen that because you've had turnover, you've had turmoil, you've had teams that get better, but then it takes a step back. And there's multiple reasons for that. But it's fine that you, you Indiana has had the, as much success as it's had. But it also started almost from scratch in 2008. It managed to get back to number one, and then it wasn't sustained because the the system that was being used wasn't sustainable. But that that to me is is kind of uh, what what's what it it really you know drove it home to me that this really was an expansion program in 2008. And so to me, there's two eras of Indiana basketball there's 2008 on and everything before because it's they're kind of separate things hmm. well when you you know it's this has all been you know this this whole in-depth article the research is pure results on the court but what you just yes. alluded to is like the fan base assembly hall you know there are those five banners And this is something Eric and I talk about, too. Like, what is a fair way to assess Archie? Because I think, you know, talking about the last 25 years, look, Eric and I go down memory lane every time we have a guest on. That's kind of what we do. But it's also in the hope, like, it's hope turns, uh, uh, hope Hope springs eternal. eternal. Yes, thank you for the future. And it's like, why do we think, sitting here today, Indiana has a better chance to get back to being a always in the top 25, always in the NCAA tournament. But I think where really all the fans really expect us to be, at least really want us to be, is top 10 program on the court. Every year in the tournament and a threat to make a run in the tournament. So Yeah, like are we better? I think that's a great way that Ward just kind of said that. What makes us think based on all the research that you kind of laid out in black and white that was the first time anybody laid it out like that, are we any better positioned than Xavier to do what Ward just described? Are we any better positioned than West Virginia, than Iowa State, than Minnesota? I'm using some of the teams that when you looked at your analysis, we are around in several categories. I guess the question is, Ward and I definitely want to believe that we are, but I'm asking you, Ken, do the natural advantages that we think Indiana has, recruiting base, facilities, especially with the increase in facilities over the last several years, are we any better positioned to get to an elite level than any of those teams that the last 25 years puts us in the middle of? I say yes, and the reason is those fans. 
who I think are the 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 one of the best things that Indiana has going for them. And it is a problem, too, sometimes as well. I'm not going to say that they're not because of the fact that there are these hopes and these sky-high expectations that uh, just don't match the reality of what the program has been for the past quarter century. And yet, think about those, uh, the, the, that 6-25 and 25 year. Think about the 10-21 and 21 year, the 12-20 and 20 year. Assembly Hall was packed. People believed Indiana basketball was going to come back because it said Indiana on its chest. That is pure fan hope because it's not a real thing. Just because you wear the clothes doesn't mean that you can play the game. And that is something that uh, that fans lose because lose lose sight of that because, hey, you're an Indiana player. You should be able to do this. Well, you know what? That was absolutely true in 1987. Uh, it's not true in 2018. Just because you put on the Indiana jersey doesn't mean suddenly you're better than what your recruiting ranking was. You know, you, you, lo- you look at some of the guys, and I know that I went into it in the article, just, you know, these guys, this is where they were ranked coming out of high school. And just because it says Indiana on their chest doesn't suddenly boost their ranking or make them more talented than they are. And uh, by that same token, that belief that Indiana fans have, the way Assembly Hall can light up when it's truly rocking, uh, I I think is something that is a huge positive for the program because very few places can match that. And kids want to be a part of it. And so it it really is is a struggle to to try to balance those expectations. And yes, you want them uh, to be, uh, you know, an elite program and get back to that point where you're going to the tournament every year. That's obviously a, you know, a, a base uh, thing. Obviously you're going to go to the NCAA tournament. Why wouldn't you? You want to get back to that. But the bottom line is that isn't near where Indiana is. An average season for Indiana over the past 25 years has been 19 and a half wins. But but how how and looking I don't know how much you got to look at the other teams especially in our neighborhood with a lot of those stats you know in the low forties and stuff like that but how many had a six and twenty five season and how many were ranked number one in the country for the majority of the year how many endured three seasons of being like just horrible and you know l- less than 10 years before that were in the championship game like don't you think IU has been more extreme and how bad it's been and how good it's been compared to a lot of those other teams say you know 20 through 40 oh absolutely Absolutely. And I would argue that's a good thing. And the reason I argue that's a good thing is to to me, there's nothing worse than being mediocre. To to me, that all you're doing is spinning your wheels and being mediocre doesn't get you anywhere. If, If you are terrible, changes are going to be made to try to fix that problem. If you're mediocre and you're limping along and, uh, you know, just barely squeaking into the tournament, you know, and, or, you know, putting together a run and, uh, you know, and being able to, you know, for instance, win a Big Ten championship while playing the weakest um, schedule in the conference and being able to, to win it, but without any kind of sustainable plan going forward. uh, To me, that, that is, uh, you have to couple that winning with the ability to build something sustainable. And that is something that Indiana hasn't been able to do. And, you know, okay, so, you know, Mike Davis goes to the title game. Uh, some, some say it's a perfect storm. 
I say, you know, th- this is a team that could shoot lights out with a seven-foot special NBA caliber player and guys who just enjoyed playing together and really uh, it just could, could could get hot. And it was just it was just beautiful to watch them rain threes on people. And you could beat anybody in the country when they were knocking down shots. You know, they were they were gritty enough to come back and and uh, beat Duke in the tournament. And they go to an, a title game, play one of the sloppiest title games in uh, NCAA history and lose and yet it just wasn't sustainable going forward because the roster that had been pieced together uh mike davis fell in the trap of falling in love with glittery talent it's a trap that tom crean fell in love with as well is you go for glittery talent instead of bringing in pieces that are going to fit what you're trying to do because you have enough vision and enough confidence to say, this is what I'm trying to do and I'm going to follow my plan um, through the ups and downs because I believe it's going to work. Uh, they, they, they took a step back. So to me, if you're going to be bad, be working towards something or make a change. So that uh, that you can do that. And I give Indiana credit for for at least this much. They haven't allowed mediocrity to reign for too long without making a change. Mike Davis, two years of mediocrity. He's gone. Uh, You had uh, Tom Crean, where, where he built this program, went to the highest of heights, had a had a down year, but then won a Big Ten championship. And. To me, the vision of that team, of the program going forward from that Big Ten championship team, the second one, I, I've, I've said and I said it in the article, the big boy move, the impossible move, there's no way it could have it could have been done. The big boy move would have been to suggest to Tom Crean to move on after that second Big Ten championship because he hadn't built anything that was sustainable and you knew it was going to take a step back. It's impossible to do to fire a guy who just won Big Ten Coach of the Year. But I wasn't getting dazzled by uh, the wins. I thought Indiana's winning, and that's great. But to me, when you judge a program, you don't, you, you've got to judge it on the direction that it's going and what the future looks like. Because the past is great for fans and media to talk about, and it means absolutely nothing for where your program is going. It has to be always forward-facing, looking forward. And uh, Indiana at least made a move uh, when you could have made an argument that that Tom Crean, from a results, um, a pure results standpoint, could have stayed on as head coach at Indiana, might have gotten deserved an extension after that second Big Ten championship. To me, it, it would have been crazy to do that because the future did not have a good path in front of it, and Indiana was able to to you know make the changes are willing to make the change and bring in Archie Miller, who Miller at least uh, seems to have a better vision of what he wants to build the program, where he wants it to go. Uh, his recruiting isn't as just scattershot as it was uh, during those final Crean years when, you know, you have a guy like Grant Galon who, God bless him, you know, he's, he's a decent player. He's not an Indiana player. Tim Priller is not an Indiana player. He's not somebody who who belonged in the Big Ten, and yet he th- those guys were brought in, and I think that, uh, you know, Archie Miller at least has that vision of where he wants 
the program to go. And with the fan support, with everything that goes into uh, um, the program, the high expectations, the certain, you know, successful, you know, years along the way that keeps Indiana in the headlines uh, based on, on perception, you know, based on, on, on perception and how uh, the TV networks feel about them, how fans come out and watch the games. So it makes it so that, um, that Indiana stays on television in big games, even on years that they probably don't deserve to be there. There they are on a CB on a Saturday afternoon, a CBS game, uh, playing a team that, uh, uh, they might have a good game. It might be a blowout. You don't know, but what, it, it is. I'm sorry. From, from what you know about Archie Miller two years in, let's say he gets that success. You know, obviously Mike Davis had it early on. Tom Crean had to work a couple more seasons to get there himself. Do you th- do you think Archie is, has the kind of personality and the kind of vision you alluded to to just stay that course for the next like twenty or thirty years? Because he just seems sort of like this this dogged personality to me that's so much less worried about what people think about him that that I feel like maybe Mike Davis and certainly Tom Crean were subject to that he's just like born and raised with a coach dad and an older brother and now he's got his own thing going and no matter how the storm rages around him good or bad he will he has that vision rather than like you know uh, we've been through the cycle a couple times now will will if he gets us back to where we want to be you think he'll keep us there for the first time since bob knight indiana has a head coach who's comfortable in his own skin and Mike Davis knew that he was he, he he knew he wasn't ready to be head coach at Indiana but he couldn't say no. Uh Kelvin Sampson when he was hired some of the guys at Oklahoma said that they nicknamed him Naismith cuz he acts like he invented the game. He he was he was somebody one of those people who is certainly Xs and Os but in terms of running a program he 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 wasn't comfortable with that. He wasn't worried about. It. He he only wanted to worry about basketball, and that's not how you run a program. Tom Crean was this this ball of insecurity that uh, could could coach at times when he focused. Sometimes uh, didn't. Uh, but when it comes to Archie Miller, he's a guy who uh, played the game, was a guard, had good vision on the court, saw how good programs are run is from a coaching family is from a group of uh, people who are successful and is tremendously comfortable in his own skin in how he sees the game how he recognizes things as they're happening um Crean took a lot of uh, guff for the verbal tick of saying he had to go to the tape as because he didn't want to admit i don't know uh you know i didn't see it Archie Miller will say that he'll just say, I'm, I'm not, not sure about that. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, he'll say, I'll have to look at the tape, but he, he won't just dismiss it. It's it's he'll say, I don't know about it because he's not worried about making sure everybody knows that he belongs there. He has a lot of uh, just comfort in his skin and he doesn't lie to people like, like Crean would tell these little lies about the, where anybody with eyes uh, I know that he was just backing his program, backing his players, saying, I know, you know, we lost this game, but we're getting better. We're doing a better job at taking care of the ball. We have X deflections. We're do- getting better defensively. And anybody with eyes could say, no, you're you're not. And I, I know that you're trying to, to, to paint this picture, but you can't lie to Indiana fans because they, they know the game. And 
Archie Miller knows the game and he doesn't try to lie to anybody. And I think that that vision and and just there's a certain respect that he gets from high school coaches in the state of Indiana as well, that they believe that he knows what he's talking about and he doesn't come in with any kind of pretenses, any kind of arrogance. Um, he just has confidence, but he's not overconfident. And that is one of the reasons why uh, I just feel like he does have an opportunity to be successful at Indiana and be successful for a while because he he just has that confidence and that vision to say, I, I, I'm doing this the the right way and I know I'm doing it the right way. And yet I do still think that he's young enough and takes enough input from people that he's able to take that criticism and say, uh, you know, criticism from people that he respects. You know, you talk about fans, you know, you know, idiots like me, you know, we're not going to move the needle with him. But there are people that are uh, that he respects that he'll listen to and that he'll make the changes that he needs to. He's still a young coach. And and that's the thing is he's not learning on the job, but I think that he people forget that he is as young as he is and has a chance to continue to develop and continue to build confidence that's already, you know, pretty solid. I agree with a lot of what you just said, but I just want to say one thing. You made a great point that Indiana has done a decent job, maybe not a perfect job. It's not been a perfect job, but a decent job, but not accepting mediocrity. And you also talked about some other factors that play into how a program is viewed by the national stage. What kind of games are you playing in? So there is no doubt that we have had two years of Archie Miller mediocrity. I'm not I'm not ascribing blame here. I'm just saying I'm kind of doing the live version of the Ken Bikeoff article that was written. I'm doing an addendum. Sure. We've had two years of at best mediocrity. We played Duke two years in a row in the ACC Big Ten Challenge, which was really a leftover of the Crean era when those games got scheduled and the excitement of Archie's first year. Wait, they don't schedule those games seasons in advance. No, but Crean's last year, and the Crean got us, Crean built a program that made us nationally relevant in a way that we hadn't been under Davis's last few years. Sure. We now get scheduled against Florida State in Archie's third year. I would say the fifth best team. The I'm not going to say best team. The fifth most relevant team in the ACC conference. You may be absolutely right, and I agree. It looks like Archie has a vision. It looks like he's getting. He's going to put it put us in the position that we want to be in. It looks that way. We have no evidence on the court of that yet. So my question is. With 25 years of relative mediocrity behind us, a fan base that gets more and more uneasy, how long will Indiana give Archie Miller to be mediocre before they pull the big boy move and say, it's not working fast enough for us? Well, I mean, you know, look, those expectations, uh, I've actually had people contact me. Uh, saying, you know, you get so involved in the 
uh, year by year expectations and disappointment and all that. That one thing that the the article I wrote uh, really gave them was that overall view to where they realized, oh, okay, it's been this this way for a long time, and this is our real peers now. It's not about expectations. I don't care what former players have to say about the program. It's it's irrelevant what the perception of the program is. It's the reality of it. And if you look at the past couple of years, uh, I, I just had no idea uh, Archie Miller's first year, how the coaching staff, uh, the previous coaching staff, ever thought they were going to win with the group of guys that they had and the way that they liked to play. It just wasn't built to fit the system that the previous coaching staff had. Now, you brought in a coach who has a complete 180 view of how to do things. He's defense first, uh, isn't worried about pushing the tempo, works with quality over quantity when it comes to possessions, and that's the opposite of what happened with the other, uh, the previous coaching staff. And so when they struggled that first year, I understood it. Last year, uh, you had certainly more guys that were able to come in and help out. A guy like Romeo, uh, you know, Juwan Morgan obviously w- was uh, was great. There's still not a ton of shooting, and that's a, a concern for the way that they want to play. But if you look at the, at just the guys who excelled last year, who were consistent last year, there were a lot of young guys there. Now, it's not all young. I mean, obviously they missed on Evan Fitzner, and I don't think anybody uh, would really argue that. But, you know, they, you know, you had guys um, that were supposed to be anchors for the team that uh, didn't live up to what they uh, they maybe you thought they were going to do. And I'm talking about a guy like Justin Smith, maybe, or, uh, or a Devonte green. They were just too inconsistent for that. Deron Davis was slow in getting back. Zach McRoberts had problems. And to me, it's, it's going forward now. Uh, I think that Indiana is going to be patient, uh, you know, as they build, as long as there shows progress this year, this is unquestionably a very important season for this group because, you know, you want to be able to show progress and show that, okay, in year three of a program, we've been able to establish a culture and go forward and and really get some of those young guys uh, to develop over over a couple of years. Uh, I, I think this is going to be an absolutely critical year. If they're terrible, I also don't think Indiana fires him. I don't think that it's it's anywhere right. near that point. I, I think that I they agree. understood. And, and again, Fred Glass got a lot of uh, heat for saying that it was a rebuild situation. And I couldn't agree with him more. I, I really felt that with the way that they brought him in, uh, Archie Miller in, and the system that he runs and the way that he coaches with the roster he was left with and some of the limitations that were kind of they were stuck with because of the APR and things like that in terms of player movement, it, it really was not a real rebuild to the point of Tom Crean in 2008. But certainly in just rebuilding a foundation for what you want the program to be going forward, I thought Fred Glass was exactly right in in doing that. And Indiana fans hate to to hear about being patient. They don't want to do that. We're Indiana and, you know, and we shouldn't have to be patient. Well, the reality is sometimes you got to be. And uh I just do think it's a critical year because you really want to see some uh, uh, development this year on both ends of the court. Uh, You want to see that system that Archie has been putting in place and drilling into people's heads of how he wants to play. This is going to be a really critical year. And, uh, you know, I, I just am interested to see if the fans 
are going to provide the same support for Archie Miller's team this coming year as they did Tom Crean's third year when Indiana won 12 games. To me, it's going to be real interesting, or if that well has just been tapped for so long with so much disappointment that it's not going to be there. It's, it's going to be an interesting year, to say the least. I, I will also say on that point, Ward and I have discussed this a little bit. Tom, especially his first three years, was just better at the rah-rah game than Archie will ever be. That's not who Archie is. And so Tom was able to create some excitement around the program with his kind of unbridled enthusiasm that made up for a lot of the deficiencies of the team and the program. And I think that enthusiasm, especially those first few years, because we were coming off of the Samson debacle, it was infectious at the beginning. It wore itself out for sure and collapsed upon itself. But Archie, that's not him. Archie's success and support for the program is going to come from results on the court more than where Tom could rely on being a cheerleader. And and I think that 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 doesn't lead to wins being a cheerleader. It doesn't. I do think it led a little bit to some butts in the seats and some recruits and, and recruits and, and just buzz around the program because Tom was a cheerleader. He was a cheerleader. Archie Miller, when we beat a ranked team, isn't going out into the concourse of Assembly Hall and handing out pizza. He's not going to do that ever. I don't care if we beat a number one team in the country. That's just not going to be who he is. So I think we have to keep that in mind. Uh, Ken, your perspective on all this stuff is so valuable. Uh, I love talking to you. I love hearing your stories. I I said at the beginning, I'm going to say it again. You are the unsung hero of the Peegs family. And the work that you put in behind the scenes that no one will ever know helps Peaks run as smoothly and efficiently as it is. And then the work that you do both on the Peaks podcast throughout the season and the off season, and these kind of deep dive feature length articles are just so valuable to the Indiana fan base. Ward and I, uh, we talk about it all the time. We love them. And, and, and we hope everybody gives, if they haven't given this article specifically a shot, Give it another shot. Read it through. And anytime you see Ken Bykoff's name on an article, it's worth checking out. Uh, we just couldn't be happier that you joined us for this, Ken, and and we appreciate everything you've done for us. Well, I'm 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 thrilled to join you guys. And you know, it's uh, all the deep dive stuff that that's really where I get down. I mean, I love history. I love understanding the perspective and the context that everything comes through. I, I have I, I tell everybody, you know, nothing new ever happens. And the same <laughs> problems that Indiana has had with uh, their their basketball programs or fan support or you know disruption, it's happened with football. It's happened uh, you know with Lou Watson during that transition. Transition between Branch McCracken and Bob Knight. Lou Watson, uh, you know, had um, had his issues along the way. Uh, you know, football is is just been a, a festival of issues along the way. And Indiana, you know, just as a basketball program, it's and I just get into uh, all these stories of where Indiana sports come from. You know, what what makes um, how we got here, and uh, you know that question of how did we get here is something that uh, I think about all the time, whether it be 
for IU football, whether it be for IU basketball. That's where that genesis of the perception and reality story was, was just how did we get here? How, how did, you know, let's look back because it's easy to forget how we get here. And to me, that's, that's kind of my role is try to, try to bring some of that perspective and not get lost in the minutia of how many guys, you know, who missed a shot or who missed a defensive right. assignment, but where did he come from? Where did, uh, you know, um, he, he, you know, where did all of that go? You know, think about it. Romeo Langford uh, just recently went in the draft 14th to the Boston Celtics. The Celtics had that pick because of a trade that involved DJ White in 2013. Wow. You know, that's nothing, awesome. It, it, there, there's always, there, there's always, a, and it was, it was the Kevin Garnett trade that uh, the Celtics had with the, with the Brooklyn Nets. Um, you know, it, it was, and DJ White was a part of that. And, you know, so things happen, but what you see in front of you every day is just the end of the story. And it's right. also the beginning of another story in five years. But, you know, everything that you see, it, it started years ago, maybe when somebody wasn't, was 13 years old. You know, that might have been when uh, when something happened that led to that and led them to this point. And uh, for people to be cheering for him or booing to, uh, booing at him, wh- whatever you want to do, whatever's happening in front of you, what is happening right now is really the end of the story. Because the real story is everything that happened before. And now it's time to to try to find those stories and, and try to figure out, okay, that's where they were. This is where they're now. This is where they're going. And to me, that's always the question for any program that you're looking at. And, uh, you know, if you we look at, at you guys with your, your podcast that you're doing, you know, how that came to be, what you're doing with it, how you're building that and where you're going with it. I, you guys have a better path going with uh, what you you guys are doing than Archie Miller has, no question, or or Tom Allen with <laughs> with football or anybody. You you got to, you know your 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 slope is definitely uh, looking up, and I'm yep. excited to have you guys uh, you know ju- just uh, uh, doing your podcast and just expanding what uh, we offer at Pigs. It's it's I think it's tremendous. Well, we hope there's more glory days that we get to cover in oh, present. Me tense. too. You know, that no would be kidding. real nice. And as long as we got Ken Bykoff helping to tell some of the Indiana story over the next couple of years, Pigs fans are in good shape. Ken, thank you so much. Uh, we will do this again soon. All right. Sounds good, guys. Thanks so much. Okay. Ken. Ken Bykoff. Just great insight, great perspective. Love his NBA stories. I just wanted to get more into your and I disagreements over what his article meant. Like, I guess he wrote the article, so it's out there. But I'm yeah, I, we'll save that for another podcast. You're, you're, you're. This is. This I, I just, I, I, I go back and forth on what it meant. I like, I, I keep a lot of things. Like while he was talking, I was like, "Well, are we DePaul?" Like part of me was like, "Are we DePaul?" But but and like, then he's like, "The fans is what separates us." Okay. I buy that kinda. St. John's had great fans. I don't know. I I know we got five national titles. I know that's a huge part of it, and that's a big reason we still have all those fans, and that we're one of the five most valuable programs in the country every year, and why yeah. we have top ten attendance every year. That's all fans. That's all boosters. That's all money coming into the program because you know a lot of the people with the money 
uh, do remember the glory years. I think maybe yeah, to Ken's point, they're getting old, right? So, they're getting real old. So when you look at okay, in the last twenty five years, I didn't really get to touch on this. What what is the legacy that Tom Crean left for the the twenty five and under? You know, the millennials, spray tan, spray tan. You know, looking like a lobster, baggy pants, and a lot of guys in the NBA. Yeah, more than Knight ever really had. Maybe at peak Knight, if all his guys were out there, he had seven or eight. You know, at some point, I'm sure that's true. But you know, when a recruit now goes into Cook Hall and can see Victor, Cody Zeller, you know, and even you can stretch it all the way back to Eric Gordon, who's constantly playing deep into the playoffs. You know, that those are things that DePaul does not have. That Minnesota does not have. They don't have seven, eight guys showing up on NBA rosters right now. That's and, true. And and so and again and you both you but like well you even on the spot were like, "Oh yeah, we did go to a national championship and we were number 1 in the country while then also being horrendous." So I I think there there was there's even more to get into as to why we are still special and special everything around the program that then lads lads why are you looking at your watch right now? I'm trying to make a point. Ken Bykoff just texted me. Oh, that's cool. He just texted that he had okay. a great time. Well, I'm still debating on his article right now. Is that I think with the right coach, and this is what we didn't get to touch on, and we know no, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Archie probably doesn't know if he's the right coach at this point, though I think he does. You know, believe that. I think he thinks he's the no, right coach. He does. Yeah. Anybody else, you know, outside of the program, all those talking heads, uh, I don't know. Uh, everybody's got their hot take or their long take, depending on, you know, if you've read Ken's article. But it's it's that whether it's IU or it's Wichita State, if you have the right coach, you can get to the Final Four. I agree but with But when that. you're Indiana and you have the history and you have the fan base and you have the recruiting backyard that Indiana has – it should be easier. I agree. I totally agree with that. I knew you would. That I agree with. We'll see. Mm-hmm. I, we'll see. Well, look, no, I'm telling you what. If we have the right coach, it will happen. There's yeah. no doubt. Okay, right, right. I mean, the right coach goes to Texas Tech and takes them to the champ to the final exactly. four. Yeah, the right coach goes to Virginia and wins a championship. I bet if either of those coaches for the were last... in Bloomington, well, I don't, I don't, I want to say that. I, I like to think that that's true, but I was just having this conversation with my dad. Fit matters. Fit matters. And just because, eh. no, it matters. I, no, look, you get the Fit coach. Matters. You get the coach in. Okay. And coach like, K could work anywhere. Okay. John Calipari could win anywhere. I don't know if Tony Bennett gets to that level of success anywhere. I don't. Tony Bennett, I've. Brian Snow said it. Some other people said it. Doesn't want the the glare of the giant spotlight. Like, that's part of why he liked the Virginia job and didn't like jobs like Indiana. I don't know if the glare of the spotlight tweaks you. Chris Holtman apparently did not want the Indiana job because of that. So fit matters is all I'm saying. Sure. That there are some coaches that transcend everything. Roy Williams is going to win everywhere. He won at Kansas. He won at North Carolina. Coach Krzyzewski would win everywhere. But look, I think like if Bennett wanted that, he, he could he could win at Indiana even more than he's won I at know, Virginia. But that, that's like an existential question because yes, if Coach Bennett had the instinct to want the Indiana job, then he wouldn't be the guy that he is now. Eh. I mean, he wouldn't. He would be a different human being. 
the guy that took the Virginia job doesn't want the spotlight of the Indiana job. So that's not who he is as a human. So I don't think you can like change that character piece of him and just go, well, yeah, but if he wanted it, he would be it. That's not who he is. I, I think fit matters. I, I, I think there are some coaches that can do really well and win at unbelievably high levels at some places and can't do it at others. Sure. I mean, the guy, this is a little different, I, granted, but like the Gonzaga coach before Few was great at Gonzaga. Few didn't build Gonzaga. Few built them into what they are now, but Gonzaga was a good school. They won before. I think it was Musselman, wasn't it? The guy who went to Minnesota. Oh, okay. I, I'm probably uh, I, wrong I, on the name. But the guy who was at Gonzaga and won and had a good tourney runs went to Minnesota and failed miserably. Mm-hmm. Did he become a bad coach? I don't think so. Yeah, but don't you think if he'd went to Indiana with all its inherent advantages, he would have done better? I have no idea. The spotlight could have crushed him. Mm-hmm. Maybe he couldn't deal with the Big Ten style of play. Mm-hmm. Maybe he couldn't recruit at at a school where you have five schools around you going for the same exact players, where at Gonzaga, you don't have anybody going well, for those Well, players. I guess when you say the right coach, you got to factor all that into it. And-, and we haven't hired the right coach in the last 19 years. The last time we hired the right coach was 1972, and we don't know if Archie's the right coach. Right. I well, hope but, to God he is. I, I guess what, what I think everybody should agree on, and I know several people I text with won't agree on this, is that we don't know that he isn't the yeah, right coach yet. That's fair. I think we'll know after next year. I think we'll know in two years. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you and I will be in agreement he's the right coach if things go well next year. And if things go horribly wrong next year, you will disagree with me. If things go horribly wrong, not due to catastrophic injury, if we do not make the tournament next year and shit the bed in the in the Big Ten, I will have a a, a, a pit in my stomach that is telling me it's not going to work because we should be better in year three than we were in year two. And, well, I, and, and look, we know Optimist Ward will be like, well, think about Crean's third year. That boy, that was not very good. That was not very good. I will, I will, if this season goes badly, I will try to intellectually get myself yeah, braced for one more year of hoping because what else do we have? But even what Ken said, I think is fair. He compared what we were with Tom Crean's first three years to expansion college basketball, starting from scratch. Well, I mean, but but when you're talking about Fred Glass going to the trustees and Ken agreeing with him that it's a total rebuild, like you can be like, well, it's no, kind rebuild of rebuild. Is, I, th- I, I actually think there is a difference between expansion, start from scratch, and rebuild something that was already at a decent place and you just have to get back there. Well, Expansion and, is different than that because Ken is basically saying... Yeah, but look at the results of the first two seasons. Archie definitely did better than Crean did the first two seasons. Yes, he should have. No, he did. Yes, and just but, look at the... Yeah. But that is... that's. That uh, right, I guess what I'm saying is flip positions, give Crean what art, give Crean what Crean left behind, and I think Crean's first two years at Indiana would have looked remarkably similar to what we saw the last two years under Archie, which is mediocrity. Sure. So uh, I I don't think what Archie did the last two years is but, anything to be excited but, but, about. But you just gave Crean back his own players that he left to Archie, <laughs> yeah, which were a shit show. I know. Well, if Crean would have continued with those players, I mean, that's really the question. If Crean would have continued, if Indiana would have extended him, I have every I have every confidence that the team would have been the same that we saw for the last two years as far as results. 
we would have been a 500 team and we would have missed the tournament. But that's so weird because you you had a theory in theory a coach recruiting to his style of play, which I thought that was quite insightful by Ken. Something I hadn't heard before, like the four different phases of Tom Crean as yeah. a coach and a recruiter and a human being. Like that was a really fascinating insight he gave us, charting the path of of Tom Crean through those nine years. And but we, look now, Archie through those first two years, like. What players that he recruited, like you had to recruit Romeo. Okay, I don't care. Yeah, what, I know. What, what, I don't are care. we not going to get into it? What are we going to get into here? What, oh, what kind of play you're going to, what kind of style of play you're going to recruit Romeo? Okay, so then who have we seen on the court that Archie Miller has recruited, said, this is my guy for how I want to play basketball? It's really only Rob Finnessy. Yes, but what what is the point you're trying to make here? Is that we have no idea what Archie's team is going to look like. I think if you watch, but no one's arguing with you. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, there's a no, lot no, of. I'm people. not arguing with you. I, I agree with you. We don't know what Archie is. We have no evidence on the court that he is the guy. We have some evidence on the court that. Whatever style he's coaching isn't clicking yet. What I'm saying is, there's a ton of people out there already calling for his head. Well, those are, but you and I both agree those are idiots. Yeah, but I'm friends with some of them. Yeah, but they're idiots. I mean, I, I, we, I'm. Well, look, but they're idiots. But but this this is why you're saying year three, year three, year three. Well, well, I look, didn't say fire him for any reason in year three. No, you're saying you will be able to determine I'm just it by the end of year three. My opinion is, I'll be able to judge. And and you're going to be looking at a team next year, even that's barely his guys. I don't know, not barely. Okay, well, Devontae not Green barely. he didn't recruit. Al Durham, he just said, okay, you're coming here anyway. Yes. I need to keep you. Deron Davis, okay, so who's he going to have? He's going to have Joey. He's going to have Trace. He's going to have Rob. Hopefully, he'll have more. Hopefully yeah, well, no, we'll no, no, see no, wait, Race wait. out there. Ar Hopefully we'll see Jerome Rays, out there. Armand, Jerome. I mean, yeah, Joey. I mean, he's going to have six, seven guys that are. But I'm talking about who's going to be starting and getting a lot of the minutes. Is Justin okay. going to be out? Joey's there? Joey's going to play a ton. I'm, I'm still. Rob saying, is going to play a ton. The starting point guard. Uh, no, I'm saying team. Rob. I'm saying yeah. Rob is. But but a look. The only indication we've really had so far on the court of which Archie's all about is Rob on both ends of the court. Yeah, Demisi's his guy too. Yeah, well, and that's why he didn't see the court last year. Yeah, well, but that's his guy. I mean, what well, his guy? Yeah. Uh, uh, Wait, you can't. But you talk about stacking classes and wanting guys in their third and fourth year. I mean, did you think Demizi was going to be ready to to get in the NBA no. lottery after no, this year? No, of course not. I thought he oh. would contribute something. I didn't think he would look as lost as he did. I didn't. I thought. I thought. I mean, I watched... yeah. But what have we heard about him since? I know, but uh, you and I both know that we're not trusting what we hear about what happens in practice. You don't trust Jawan Morgan. <laughs> I don't trust anything about practice. I don't. You I'm don't excited. trust Juwan's, trust Juwan's opinion on who's going to break out next year. I'm excited by his opinion. I don't trust it. My God, the golden jersey? I don't trust any <laughs> of that stuff. Trust and excitement. Yeah, you're kind of parsing. But no, I, I, I have... I don't have confidence that Demise Anderson is going to explode the way that the guys have told us to. Yeah, I'm that, waiting. That, I'm waiting I, and seeing it. I'm excited by the opportunity, by the possibility of it, but... We just go back to, we just don't know yet. Nope. And that's what's maddening and why we argue. Yeah. All right. Follow us at Hoosier Hysterics, no vowels and hysterics on Twitter. Email us at HoosierHysterics at gmail.com. This wrap-up was way longer than we wanted it to be. No, I wanted it to be long. Yeah, dude, you did. All right. We got to get the hell out of here. Take care, everybody. From the halls of assembly, you'll hear us scream and shout. Our love of Indiana is manic and devout. Archie and his boys, we discuss in unique manner. We won't be satisfied until we hang another banner. Us
guys go by names of Ward and Eric. And as you probably know by now, we're Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Hoosier Hysterics. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.